The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. What I didn't realize at the time was that this was a thing. I'd never heard the term revenge porn. I mean, even the term revenge porn and non-consensual pornography is so salacious. These were not photos that I posed for. I didn't even know they were taken, but they were being used against me. And I had no way of getting the website down and no way of getting him to stop. Hello and welcome to The Hearing, a legal podcast where we have insightful discussions with interesting people connected to the law. I'm your host, Jennifer Thibodeau, and today I sit down with Darieth Chisholm. Darieth is an Emmy award-winning television presenter, a former NBC News anchor, an international motivational speaker, an author, a health, business, and life coach. But we didn't talk about any of that today. Instead, I invited her to come on the show to talk about her experience and trigger warning here as a victim of revenge pornography. Revenge porn is any non-consensual pornography. And as Darius tells us, she didn't know that these photos of her existed, never mind consent to having her ex plaster them on the internet. Darius shares her story with us today. She talks about what it took to get these photos down from working with US Homeland Security, filing suit in Florida State Court, working with the Jamaican authorities, and by the way, she made history in Jamaica with this case, and hiring a Canadian company to issue a takedown notice to the online service provider. This process took her nearly a year. And along the way, she did what she does best. She broke her own story. She actually decided to create a global social justice movement, Fifty Shades of Silence, to give voice and dignity to victims of revenge porn, cyber harassment, and cyberbullying. I am confident that after listening to this episode, you will have a different perspective on what it's like to navigate the justice system, particularly when laws and protections don't exist, and what it means to own your story. And now, my conversation with Darius. The Hearing. Hello, Darius, and welcome to The Hearing. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me. It is such a privilege to have this conversation with you today because I have to confess, since I heard you deliver a keynote at a women's empowerment conference that I attended, I can't get your story out of my mind. And I want to start with quoting back to you something that you said at the beginning of your remarks that day. And it was, our life is like a book made up of many chapters. And I jotted that down because I loved it. And at the end of your remarks, I learned that your chapters have included Emmy award-winning TV journalist, NBC news anchor, business and health coach, entrepreneur, author, motivational speaker, and victim and survivor of revenge porn and creator of a global social justice movement, amongst other chapters we'll discuss. Can you start by sharing a little bit about where you were in your book of life, what you have done when this just living nightmare occurred with your ex-boyfriend? Yeah, thank you so much for having me and also for attending that day and uh, really taking in the essence of my story and unfortunately the story of millions of people who are impacted by revenge porn, uh, non-consensual pornography, uh, or what some might call cyber sexual assault. And at the time when I had this unimaginable experience happen to me, Uh, This was several years ago. I had ended a relationship with an uh, ex-boyfriend who I'd been living with in Jamaica. And, uh, you know, I I ended the relationship. And several months later, I get a 
phone call from him in the middle of the night. This is on uh, the uh, New Year's Eve, and it he threatened me. He threatened my life and said, I will stab you in your heart and shoot you in your head if you don't return to the relationship. Mm. And to have that kind of threat is is obviously very startling and emotionally draining and scary on many, many levels. And, you know, I chose to try my best to ignore it and not um, be impacted by it, although obviously I was quite fearful of it. And two weeks later, because I had not been responding to his continued text messages to me, I opened my text message and there is a video with a bunch of photos and videos of me naked that he had been secretly taking of me while I was living with him in Jamaica in the previous year. And I was floored. I was devastated because not only was I looking at this video, but beyond that came a post that said, now, if you don't call me, I will silence and destroy you and send this out onto the internet. And in fact, he did. And it's interesting that as I'm even telling this story now, I'm getting shivers because of the amount of uh, shame and embarrassment and anger that I felt in that moment. And of course, I called him, (laughs) begging him to please stop. But what he wanted more than anything else was for me to return to the relationship. And because I didn't, and because I continued to ignore him, that fueled his obsession And every day I would get a new message with a different video and a different threat saying, this is going out onto the internet. And within a couple of months, he made good on his deal. He put up a website with my name on it, with all of these images and photos of me naked, and began circulating this to my ex-husband, to my coaching clients, to the former television station that I worked with to anyone that he could literally pick up a phone and call and have them go to the website. But then also, you could Google my name and find it. So you could just imagine just how devastated I felt in that moment. But what I also didn't realize at the time was that this was a thing. And I'd never heard the term revenge porn. I didn't know what cybersexual assault or non-consensual pornography. I mean, even the term revenge porn and non-consensual pornography is so salacious and damaging Mm. in and of itself. And these were not photos that I posed for. I didn't even know they were taken, but they were being used against me. And I had no way of getting the website down and no way of getting him to stop. Dari, thank you for for sharing this. You mentioned you get shivers again as you speak about it and it makes you feel angry and enraged and frustrated. Again, that's how I felt the first time I heard you tell this story and hearing it again, I have the same exact reaction. By the way, I want to really emphasize what you said about revenge porn because I did not know before hearing your story that revenge porn basically means non-consensual images and pornography. I think when people hear the term revenge porn or hear, oh, revenge porn victim, they think, oh, this is a relationship where someone consensually or knowingly took selfies and send them to somebody. And now this person has, you know, used them against you. But here you were in a consensual relationship. And as I remember you telling, you were sleeping or coming out of the shower and had literally no idea that these photos existed. And now you find yourself as someone who had been in the media, given your career as a journalist, you're a high profile person where you have a website with your name, which is probably commonly Googled. Where do you start? Because he's in Jamaica. You're in the United States. The internet is everywhere. And you have a third party online service provider that's hosting this website. Where do you go? What do you do? Yeah, you know, and at the time I was clueless. I didn't know. I I went to local law enforcement um, because of the threats, the physical threats, but and even that was <laughs> that was a joke because they were not taking me serious, and of course assumed that I'd posed for these and thought this was a very personal situation, which it was. But obviously now this has been dragged onto the internet for everyone to see. And uh, I started with a PFA. I hired an attorney in the state of Florida at the time that I was living in. 
and 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 we began the process of at least looking to get uh, a protection from abuse order because in that state that was the process. We can talk a little bit more about how each state has enacted several different uh, civil infractions or laws against these types of crimes, but they are flimsy and misdemeanors at best. And at the time, that had me in a full year court battle with the courts. I was there just asking the judge if she would give me language to petition GoDaddy and Google to remove the images. She was completely clueless about this, and this dragged on for nearly 11 months. And, you know, I, I can always remember wanting to tell this judge listen, if your naked body was on the internet for 11 seconds, you'd be humiliated. And here I am begging you to just give me the language to get GoDaddy and Google to shut it down. And that is primarily because website providers are, are pretty much safeguarded by laws that protect them as like middlemen, if you will, from the person who is putting content up. So they throw their hands up and don't want to involve themselves. And so while victims are begging the content providers, the website hosting companies to take it down, it becomes a very delicate act of, of trying to get them to take it down. And, and they're clearly protected by uh, the Communications Decency Act that protects them. So, you know, I'm going through the court system trying to get it taken down. I'm sending tons of emails to GoDaddy and Google to please take it down. Uh, at the same time, I am begging the Jamaican authorities, the police there, law enforcement, to, to assist me in some way. They wanted me to mail my laptop and computer to them because I had saved all of the images. And I, of course, was not going to send that overseas. They told me they would never send it back. I needed it for work. And fortunately, I was able to contact a company in Canada uh, called DMCA.com who issued a DMCA takedown notice. But the, still, that took several months. So at the same time, you could Google me and see the, the photos and the images. They were able to, to come to my defense and, and literally remove the content. But that didn't mean that he, he could have still continued to put it up. He was still sending me the threats. He could have started another website. I would have had to initiate another DMCA takedown notice. By the way, this was quite expensive. Expensive to do that and expensive to be in court. Hiring the attorney, traveling back and forth uh, to, to just get the language from the judge. And at that same time, I emotionally was on the floor. You asked me the question, what would you do? Well, first off, you have to find your way up off the floor. Literally, because mm -hmm. while I, you know, I, I work with people with personal development, coaching, mindset. Um, I, I've I've done a fair my fair share of spiritual work, and and would like to think that that emotionally uh, I would have been prepared to handle this, but I wasn't. And so those several months of feeling that way were were challenging because here I was battling the courts, battling the internet, trying to keep my head high, hoping no one would Google it. And then also being moving through this terrain where I wasn't getting the answers that I needed. Um, I sometime shortly after that decided that I needed to share this with my son, who at the time I was mostly concerned he would find these images of his mother um, at the same time he was threatening that he would put this out on the internet. And it was in the conversation with my son that everything shifted for me. How old was your son at the time? And, and what made you make a shift? Well, the threats were such that he was going to send the naked photos as flyers onto his college campus. And of course, no son wants to see his mother dragged through this, and I needed to make him aware of this. And, and um, I had really, I was locked in shame and silence for so many months. I hadn't told anyone, including my mother. And mm. uh, so I, I told him, and I said, you know, I've got to share all of this with you, and there's the potential for this to go beyond the internet and quite possibly affect you there at at school, at your college. 
And I will never forget the words that my son shared with me after I told him. He said, Mom, listen, I'm so sorry this is happening to you, but you're going to get through this. You are the strongest person that I know. And he said, besides, Mom, Mm. he messed with the wrong woman. Mm. (laughs) And to hear those words were like a a breath of fresh air. I, I, I describe myself as feeling like I grew wings, like all mm. of a sudden I could breathe, I could lift myself up, and I realized, yeah, you know what? I can stand in my power and figure out a way at least to end the silence and to not be made to feel emotionally the way that I was feeling and to do more than continue to be at the mercy of these courts and, and this the system online. And so I decided to go public with my story. Mm. You know, I was like, hey, wait a second. I've told the news for 20 years. I, you know, I've definitely want to get out ahead of this. I don't want, uh, want to have to run behind this. So I broke my own story. I went public with it. I went back to my former news station in Pittsburgh and they were mm. so kind and generous and allowed me to share the story. That story went viral. I ended up on the Today Show, on the Dr. Oz Show national, international publications. And fortunately, it ended up on the front page of the newspaper in Jamaica. And there happened to be a Homeland Security officer who had recently been uh, stationed there, who was reading the paper, having a cup of coffee. And he read about, you know, this, this long drawn out battle and how the Jamaican government was not assisting me and I was not getting anywhere in the States and the internet company. And he Googled my name and he called me out of nowhere. Wow. I get a phone call and he says, I'm reading your story. Do you need my help? <laughs> and Incredible. It was, it was, it was a miracle. Like literally, I said, absolutely. Yeah. And so with the assistance of Homeland Security and the U.S. Embassy in Jamaica uh, and the law enforcement there, we were able to, um, he, he made it possible for me to take my devices to Homeland Security in the States, have them scrub the devices to find all the content, which by the way, was also equally embarrassing because now I've got, I'm in the, a room with all male agents looking at mm. all my naked photos. And, and we're talking about naked photos where the camera was be, between my legs. I was sleeping, but the camera Ugh. had been taken. So now they're looking at my naked body and on these photos. Um, and you know, that process, they had to go through that. They had to send it up the chain and through the middle and to whomever, Mm. but but finally there was enough available for the Jamaican authority to issue an arrest warrant. Um, and they were able to collaborate because by then the DMCA takedown notice had been, the website was shut down, but they Mm. were able to get GoDaddy and Google to actually give them the actual original content. Uh, even though, you know, you wouldn't have been able to find it. And so it helped to legitimize all of the photos and the story that I had been obviously sharing. Mm. Uh, he was later, it took a while. It was about a, about a year long investigation, but they ended up arresting him. And it was very fortunate because it happened just at the time when the Jamaican government had just released a new law uh, that is very clear. The language in their uh, communications law, which I'm, I'm, it, I forget the name of the, the law right now, but it, it basically says that if an individual is found to be guilty of disseminating content and information without the consent of the individual, with the intent to do harm, it is recognized as a crime. And it was obviously clear that that was what was occurring. And so my case, my U, I'm a U.S. citizen, but they're in the Jamaican courts going through this. Uh, he ended up pleading guilty on three of the six charges that he was facing, but that helped to legitimize that law there for Jamaicans. And, you know, I have to say that of all of this, it, that I, I was most proud of that. You know, I, I ended up putting up a website prior to this with what to do if this happens to you because I was mm-hmm. clueless. And so I wanted to find ways to help victims at least begin to navigate this. And so 50shadesofsilence.com is that website that still is available for people to look for first steps on what to do. And there's some information there. 
But I also knew that what I could do was to do the one thing I know how to do, and that is to tell stories and to share the mm-hmm. stories because I was being contacted by people worldwide. My TEDx talk went viral, night turned into 19 different languages. And because I was getting contacted every single day by victims from around the world saying, oh my God, this has happened to me. What, what can I do? All I knew to do was to start filming. And so I ended up interviewing several women and putting together a very small independent documentary, which is also called 50 Shades of Silence. And that, of course, has helped, I believe, many people at least come to understand the significance of this and the need for tougher enforcement here in the United States. The Hearing. You're an attorney with a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. With superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. When I heard you tell your story the first time and again as I hear it now, I realize you're a public figure. You're someone who had anchored the local news for for two decades at an NBC affiliate. And instead of just kind of hiding everything, you came out in front of the story. Like you said, you went back to your former news station and you broke your own story. I know it was the conversation with your son that motivated you to do that. But talk about the professional risk to your reputation and what you had to work through in order to make that decision. Because looking back, it's the right decision. It couldn't have been easy. It wasn't easy at all. And, you know, I, I sat in the question of, do I allow people to see me this way, have the story completely misunderstood and remain locked away in shame and silence? Or do I find a way to end my silence and speak up about this? And what I didn't realize is that even in that decision that I would get as much support as I did because I worried that there would be victim shaming and victim blaming, which is a thing. And it happens for so many people, which is the reason why they don't speak up about it. It's the reason why so many people who experience this go through depression and um, consider suicide. And in many instances, there are people who take their lives, young people particularly, who are so ashamed and embarrassed by this because you know, they're living their lives on the internet. And so they fear that everyone has seen them this way. And every single email that I get from people is some through line of the shame and embarrassment that they either feel from family and friends or work or community or their their religious affiliations. Mm-hmm. And so it's ironic. I'm so glad you asked me the question because that is where I found my freedom, was in me being vocal mm. and speaking out about it. But it took tremendous courage for me to do it. I didn't have to. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously right. I could have continued to wade through it, but it was in that decision that what I realized was that this, that I wasn't alone, and that's what I want victims to know more than anything else, is that you're not alone. And that if you choose to, to speak up and speak out, that that also may give you some sense of relief because you feel as if you're t- you're at least taking some control and you're ending your silence mm. and that there could be help out there for you and to not try to navigate this alone. Darius, you also mentioned a couple of laws and that you hired an attorney because you had the resources to do so. It seemed like you have learned a lot about the justice system in two countries. What is your reaction 
to dealing with the legal system as someone who was a victim of these cyber crimes and revenge porn? I believe that we definitely need to find ways to educate people about what happens to victims who are being cyberbullied or experiencing this type of non consensual pornography. And and when I mean people, I mean those that attorneys included, lawmakers, people that are in the space who may find themselves taking legal action with a victim. Because for me, the biggest challenge was I was speaking with people who at the time, now this was several years ago, but were as clueless to this as I was. This was becoming very prevalent. Again, we're talking now almost eight years, uh, seven years ago, and even now it's completely misunderstood. And the the laws are 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 you know they're as I said they're kind of flimsy and there's no meat in them and and the need for a federal bill would be important. But when victims are 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 looking for the kind of protection that they need from either law enforcement or an attorney or our legal system they need to be educated, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and then the other thing I think that's really important, it, particularly for young people, because the, the, these incidents primarily occur with people younger than I am. And in many instances, women my age who are in relationships either with a significant other or a husband, uh, and, and they may have even consented to giving the photos, right? A lot of the mm-hmm. kids are consenting. They're sending nude pics that, you know, right. but that does not give the person the permission and the right to share the information, particularly with the intent to do wrong, but people are unaware of it. So the more education that we can make available to the general public and the more specific education that can be provided to lawmakers, people in the legal field, I think would lend better support for victims who unfortunately find themselves trying to navigate this terrain. You also mentioned, by the way, the the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and how you happened upon a company, DMCA.com, that could help you with getting the website taken down. And I wanted to ask you about that because of what you just said about people consenting and taking these photos themselves. Because as I understand the DMCA. And I'm going to give a shameless plug to practical law here at Thomson Reuters because we have resources on the DMCA that I use to educate myself, including a sample takedown notice. It is to protect the copyright owner. So here, you did not take the photos yourself. So was that a wrinkle of any sort for you because it wasn't a selfie that you took, but one that was taken of you and used without your permission. That, that I'm so glad you did your homework because that was exactly <laughs> the problem that I was facing was that, again, we the companies were are under a, a veil of protection from the um, Communications Decency Act. That protects them. They're in the middle. And then the use of the DMCA is it you it it's intact to be able to protect the cop it's the copyright which means that he's protected right in my mm-hmm. case and right. and so it leaves the victims with no place to go right in my case they found one post that I had authored on some that he had put up onto the website and that is how they mm. got it taken down out of all wow. every day he would change the the images he would change the photos they were all photos that he had taken they were able to when they confiscated his phone they found all the images that he took but there was one picture that i had taken of myself that he used with a caption beneath it and it wasn't a naked photo it was actually a, a photo of me um and that tiny little photo, believe it or not, was how they were able to to take it down. It wasn't even a photo that that I initially had saw, but because he somehow included it one day as content, mm. when they scrubbed it, they were able to find it. It's absolutely petrifying to to, to think of this. And by the way, your experience with you know Homeland Security and the all male team looking at these images, it's like another violation. But look at you acting as your own lawyer. Like you said, you had to hire lawyers and you had to save the evidence yourself. You had to turn over your computer and your laptop. 
it's remarkable all that you did and the resources that you had to actually do this, right? It strikes me that not everyone who finds themselves in this situation has the same resources as you've touched upon. Yeah, I, I, you know, I do realize I was quite fortunate, A, to to have the time, because <laughs> this right. was a lot of time, to have the energy and the wherewithal and the the consciousness and the availability to, again, not only advocate for myself, but begin this process of now advocating for others and even putting the website up. The website has is, is pretty multi-complex with tips and information and resources and connections and, and updates. Uh, and then of course, to start filming. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, just because I spent 30 years in news does not make me a docu documentarian, although I played one <laughs> in terms of, of filming it. Uh, but, but I will tell you that part of what I felt was a, a sense of service in a way that I'd never felt before, that I realized that I was was not only just rallying and advocating for myself, but for other people. And that I had, I had all of the right tools, if you will, in place at the time. And because of that, I felt as though it was important for me to do, you know, I, I, I have talked about this many times, but it was for such a time as this. And Mm. it was as if all of the, I, I had access to to at least what I needed to begin and was was being guided and supported along the way in, in some miraculous way, I have to say. But I also realized that it was really intended, I guess, for me to to shift into becoming a different person. And mm-hmm. and 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 you know, now removing myself from the situation, and this is of course later after I was having some success and, and had the documentary out and in film festivals and putting the website out and started to speaking about this, but that at that point, it, it literally became more of a, not a personal crusade, but something that was important mm. to do for the victims who I was hearing from. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I still have those emails. And so to read these stories mm. night after night after night, and, and particularly many women from around the world, from other countries, where there is no laws in place and they have no support and, you know, they're being shamed by their families. You know, I just felt like this is my way in some way to help. You know, it's not like I could fly to another country and assist them in that way, but if I could just continue to shine the light, that that would, would help others in many ways. Well, you're a storyteller, but you're also a change maker. And as you talk about, you know, connecting with women in other countries where there are no laws, this reminds me that I think it was in your TED Talk, perhaps, where you said there is such a discrepancy in the United States alone amongst states in terms of the penalty. It could be nothing. It could be a $500 fine, and it could be more. So the awareness that you are bringing through all of these different media that you contact is really remarkable because that is not something that I knew before hearing your story and learning more about it. I also want to learn just a little bit more before we talk about Fifty Shades of Silence a little bit more. This PFA order that you worked to get from the Florida judge, and you described how difficult it was to to really get that done and, and make her understand. And that's a protection from cyber stalking and cyber abuse order. Was that pursuant to a Florida law? And how long did it then actually take to get, you said, that language you needed um, so desperately in a court order? Originally, that is what the attorney that I hired suggested that we do using a Florida law because this subscript or sub information under the PFA, mm-hmm. for some degree, would have at least given me a chance to have the PFA as enforcement to get him to stop from contacting me because he was still contacting Understood. me. Understood. Okay. We wanted that to, but I had to, <laughs> I had to hire someone in Jamaica to serve him the papers. The, and, and of course it really wasn't upheld because he lived in Jamaica. So it was, mm-hmm. I was navigating something that we thought would work, but, but now I'm dealing with an internet, which was the problem that I was having with the courts is because they were 
doing, I assume, their best to try. But but like they, she would literally drop it and I'd have to go back and ask for it again so that I'd have some veil of protection. But we were navigating during a time where there wasn't much more to be used. And what I wanted more than anything else besides him stopping this was the language because at the time I hadn't had the DMCA. And this mm. is what Go- GoDaddy and Google said that I needed to provide to them. It took her 11 months. And you said you were in and out of court. I was in and out of court. I went to court 12 times, 12 wow. times. He hired an attorney who came mm. to try and fight it and brought up all of this salacious nonsense that wasn't true. She would listen to his case. She'd drop it. We'd come right back. And it's really interesting the way that this happened. And and every, you know, I, at some point is when we I started bringing the cameras in to start filming this because that's when I started to, to say, mm-hmm. I'm, gonna, I'm doing a documentary about this because this is ridiculous. And right. every time I would go to court, I'd have my cameras with me, friends, my attorney, uh, you know, he'd have, he had an attorney that he hired <laughs> here in the States to try and protect him. Long story short, the last, we, we, we finally get to this final court date and I show up, my attorney at the time, we had, I decided that I needed to pass it along to a, an attorney that was there working in the court. It just got to be too expensive. So I get mm. there, nobody's there except for me and the judge. And then every other time there was everyone else there that was seeking a PFA. So the courtroom was crowded. I walk in, his attorney isn't there. The Even the attorney that was supposed to be there representing me, it's me and the judge. Mind you, I'd wow. never had a conversation. I'd never spoke to this judge. I just wanted her to hear the story, hear it from me, understand what's mm-hmm. going on. And we waited and waited. They paged the courthouse for both my attorney and his attorney. Nobody showed up. And she says, well, I guess you won. <laughs> satisfying yet not satisfying, right? <laughs> not it, the it, win you were looking for, but. Yeah, that, that wasn't quite the win. You're absolutely right. It was by default or whatever you want to call it. But right. You know, I, I finally get the language. Um, of course, the website had been shut down by then. And now this, however, his we not we had not gone to the Jamaican. This is this was prior to even when the Jamaican authorities got involved and his arrest. Uh, mm-hmm. That didn't happen until about a year and a half later. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, at least in in the U.S., I, I, I got the language that I needed from the judge eleven months later. And. And by the way, I'm I'm not making light when I say this, but when you mentioned the difficulty in serving the papers on him in Jamaica, every lawyer listening to this podcast groaned because we have all been there, whether it is service of process out of state or out of country, can only imagine the hurdles that you had to jump through. I had to hire them every time. It was it was a, just an individual person and paying them to go track him down and find him and hand him the papers in another country was, by the, these are not things that are in the documentary, by the way, like the, <laughs> I often <laughs> say this and I say, I may have to film a part two because there's so many aspects that didn't get included that I think are important. And just as you said, for attorneys who, who come to understand how best to support their clients, like this is the kind of stuff that people have to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, you were dealing with a new law in Jamaica, and I think it's the Cyber Crimes Act you've mentioned in other appearances, and uh, a, m- a malicious communication under malicious this communications act. act. That's the title, yes. And turns out you make history as the first international case under this act as well. Let's not forget to mention that you're. It's a new act, and here you are making history again, not in the way that you might have intended. Yeah, that that again is um, was also very timely in and of itself. Is that yes, an international case, a woman coming from another country, um, legitimizing this law, if you will, and making history. And uh, you know, I what I'm so grateful for again are many people in Jamaica who've reached out and said, you know, thank you. My my child was experiencing this, or I'm going through this right now, and you know, we have a law and, and you were the first person to uphold that. And so that I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. 
you've you've given it a name in a way, you've given it a face, and there's a phrase that you've used as well, digital domestic violence. And I hadn't heard that before. Can you talk about why you have repeatedly used that term to describe what has happened to you? Yeah, because that is in fact what it felt like. You know, revenge porn, there's a lot of names for this, right? Revenge porn, mm. non-consexual pornography, all of these other things. And for me, what this was, was a form of abuse. I mean, he could not mm -hmm. physically put his hands on me. He obviously mm. was verbally abusing me. And he had not done these in the relationship, I should say. Um, but mm. but the what this felt like was digital abuse. Abuse not only from him, but even from the systems that I was facing, and it was it was a term that that I shared on the Dr. Ah show, and you know he he rightfully so you know said, hey, I've never heard this before, but I think it certainly applies in this way, and uh, and it it for me felt very much like digital domestic violence. The other thing that I became quite aware of, particularly from the people who were reaching out to me, many of them were women. Many of them were in relationships with their significant others. They may have been experiencing some form of domestic violence. And then when they got away or when they ended the relationship, this was the way that the abuser chose to continue to attack them. And, you know, and I had mm -hmm. women, even, even several of the women that are featured in the documentary, I mean, they were in 20, 30-year marriages with their husband. And of course, they slept together mm -hmm. for all of this time and maybe chose to take photos and, you know, and, and share these, the, the content with their significant others. But never would they ever have thought that this person would now use that as leverage against them in a way to continue to hurt and harm them. So for me, this, you know, I, I coined that term digital domestic violence, but it, it felt very much like that. Well, it seems like instead of using, you know, fists or a knife or a gun as a weapon, it's using the photos instead when you can't physically actually abuse someone. And that really, really struck me when you said that. Let's change gears though now. And I want to talk a little bit more about Fifty Shades of Silence. Um, tell us first about this name that you picked. Uh, <laughs> it's a little tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, it is tongue-in-cheek and, and I chose it rightfully so. First off, the, the shades of silence and silence in and of itself that most victims go through. Um, many people will not talk about this, don't want to. <laughs> for mm -hmm. all the right reasons, right? And so just sure. the the level of silence that um, the victims find themselves in, and then even the level of silence that exists for people who are, you know, who are not willing to take a stand and, 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 and do something about it or speak out about it. The tongue in cheek, of course, Fifty Shades of Grey and, and right. this, the, the relationship that, that those characters found themselves in um, and to some degree, it was very similar to to my situation, and so I just found it as such. And right, uh, it it when it dropped into my awareness, it felt like just the title to to use for this. You mentioned earlier, and I've seen firsthand what a treasure trove resource this website is, because you have included so much information there as kind of a step by step plan like a, a guide, if you will, or a roadmap as to what someone can do if they find themselves in this situation. Can you summarize a little bit of that here for people who are listening, who might find themselves or know someone in a situation, unfortunately, like this? Yeah. You know, I've, I've felt the need to do as much as I could to not only document my process, but to, to include as much support as possible on the website. And the website, I was, it was literally one of the first things that I did even before I started filming the documentary because I was at such a loss to figure out how to navigate this space. And, and, and so I was so much aware that, hey, this needed to be in place. Now, I will say that at the time, there were other people who were coming online who were speaking about this and I'm so grateful for them and you know the cyber civil rights initiative 
Um, they mm. were very instrumental early on in, in, in helping in terms of at least helping me to navigate. And so uh, I worked very closely with them uh, to, to at least begin to find other people to collaborate with and links. And then what I also wanted to do was to give people literally a step-by-step -step of what to do first when it happens. And so at the website, 50shadesofsilence.com, there's a download with seven steps that I encourage people to use that at least begins to help people to begin to, to, to figure out next steps. I will say that that some of the links on the website probably need some updating um, in, in the fact that you know a lot of this was constructed a few years ago. Um, but for the most part, it still very much is a great resource for people um, to to begin using, and you know while revenge porn and non consensual pornography is is a form of cyberbullying, it it still essentially is one and the same. And so even when people find themselves being cyberbullied, young children in particular, and while they have a little mm. more protection under some of the laws, the website also stands as a resource for for people who are just being cyber bullied and maybe, you know, they, it, this does not include naked photos or, or images of, of such. Well, I have to congratulate you because you have taken what could have been just, I don't even know the word, career ending, life ending situation. And you have absolutely, as you said, owned your story and turned it around into this global movement. And you have given your name, your face, your resources, your time, your energy, and everything to this. And it is a chapter in your life. So before we go, I would like to hear about where you are now in your book of life after this experience. Yeah, you know, and thank you for that. And um, I, it, it truly was a time in my life, a book in my life, if you will, a chapter in the book of my life that I am... I'm proud of, and I'm equally proud of all of the women and all of the support that I got and those people who also stood side by side with me and mm. the team of people who were there for me and uh, helped in many ways. And so this, while I, I did the bulk of this and obviously my name and face, are, I had the support of some really incredible people and I'm, I'm forever grateful for them. In terms of my new chapter in life, it is an entirely different situation. However, it's born out of that. You know, what I discovered as part of that was that hurt people hurt people. And mm -hmm. that is what was, I was spending so much time in the density and the darkness of the pain and the hurt, not only that I had experienced, but that I was watching play out for so many other people. And it, I, I got to a point in this next chapter in my life where I said, well, then if hurt people hurt people, then surely healed people can heal people. Mm. And I went on this, this quest of healing and healing mm. at a very core level, because what I'd realized is that all that I had been doing required so much of my energy and time and emotion and money that I never really gave myself a chance to heal. You know, my what I I was busy, but I wasn't healing. And, mm. and you know, I went on about a two-year healing journey that took me wow. all around the world looking for various different forms of healing. And uh, I found that. And and so much of my healing has taken place that I became consciously aware that these stories also need to be told. And there are different alternative forms of healing and plant medicine and breath work and Reiki and, and so many other natural forms of healing mm. that people who've gone through a huge mental illness such as this or emotional illness um, mm. really require. And, and, and so while I found my own path and way of healing, I discovered there are so many other amazing healers and healing modalities out there for people to use and choose from. 
Mm. And I did what I, I guess I know to do, which is to start sharing those stories. So I <laughs> since started a new website called thewayofthehealer.com, which is a docu-series in the process of filming another documentary, although I said I'd never film another one. <laughs> but this one on uh, amazing women who are transforming lives uh, through the use of plant medicine, psychedelics, and other forms of healing and consciousness. In addition is a podcast, which is available on various different podcast platforms and on my YouTube channel, where I'm interviewing lots of different healers who are talking about the, the varying ways that we heal. And so that has provided for me again, a, a way for me to use my voice, share my story, but the stories of other people in a much lighter way. Like it's, it's like to have yeah. these conversations and to support people in their healing journey and their transformational journey is a major shift. And, you know, I've now I've developed tools to help people. It's called shift to really help them, you know, look at what does it mean to, to step into our greatest awareness and our full potential. And, and, and each day, you know, start the day with our purpose and passion and play and pleasure and power and, and, and move from a, a state of not just healing, but thriving and that's what the way of the healer is all about. And it's, it's, it's as much about the amazing healers that I'm interviewing as much as it uh, is about our capacity to be our own healers. And at the end of all of this is the opportunity to bring ourselves back home to ourselves and to heal because healed people heal people. I love that. And it reminds me of something else that you've said, which is to turn your mess into your message. That absolutely resonates. And you had said in your remarks that day that I saw you deliver a keynote, and I know you said it in your TED Talk as well, you now own your story, you speak your truth, and you narrate this new chapter in the book of your life. Thank you so much for sharing your book as it is written thus far with us today and having the courage to tell the story and the courage for all of the work that you do. It has been such a privilege to have this conversation with you, Darius. I appreciate you having me and allowing me to, to share the many chapters in this book. And um, again, appreciate so much that you are open and available to share this uh, with your audience, uh, with the attorneys that are listening, and, and certainly uh, with those who can perhaps make a real shift and difference in the lives of others. So thank you. Thank you. Best of luck to you. The Hearing. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Hearing. Before you go, please consider leaving us a review and subscribe. This way you'll be notified when our next episode drops. We'd also love to hear your feedback, thoughts, and ideas for future guests. So drop us a line at thehearing at tr.com. That's thehearing at tr.com. Until next time. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.